Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Worcester Talking Newspaper, recorded at Colin Chan's house. I am Jenny and with me reading are... Brian. Sue. Caro. Christy. Stephen. And Stephen is just joining us um, as a new volunteer and just feeling his way around, um, so he'll have a few things to read. Duncan is our engineer and working on administration is Carol. Our copying team are Sylvia and David. And our opening and closing music is High Society March by the Canadian band, which I'm sure, sorry, brass band, which I'm sure you uh, know by now. This month's magazine articles have been collected by all the team members, which should be very interesting listening for all of us. And I hope you enjoy our offerings. 
In the aftermath of Storm Alley, I was reminded of the now a hundred-year-old poem, Wind on the Hill by A.A. Mill. Isn't it amazing, a hundred years? Christopher Robin has just come out in all the cinemas for a hundred years. No one can tell me, nobody knows, where the wind comes from, where the wind goes. It's flying from somewhere as fast as it can. I couldn't keep up with it, not if I ran. But if I stopped holding the string of my kite, it would blow with the wind for a day and a night. And then when I found it wherever it blew, I should know that the wind had been going there too. So then I could tell them where the wind goes. But where the wind come from, comes from, nobody knows. So I'll pass you now on to Brian for our first exciting story. Not so much a story, but yet, <laughs> yet another, another verse. Yes, it was a very hot summer, was it not, everyone? And for some of us, it was a bit of a nightmare of a summer, especially with regard to sleeping. W.S. Gilbert had something to say on this, on this subject, the nightmare. When you're lying awake with a dismal headache and repose is tabooed by anxiety... I conceive you may use any language you choose to indulge in without impropriety. For your brain is on fire, the bedclothes conspire of usual slumber to plunder you. First your counterpane goes and uncovers your toes, and your sheet slips demurely from under you. Then the blanketing tickles, you feel like mixed pickles, so terribly sharp is the pricking. You're hot and you're cross and you tumble and toss till there's nothing twixt you and the ticking. Then the bedclothes all creep to the ground in a heap and you pick them all up in a tangle. Next your pillow resigns and politely declines to remain at its usual angle. Well, you get some repose in the form of a doze, but with hot eyeballs and head ever aching. But your slumbering teems with such horrible dreams, you'd be very much better be waking. For you dream you're crossing the channel and tossing about in a steamer from Harwich, which is something between a large bathing machine and a very small second-class carriage. You're given a treat, penny ice and cold meat, to a party of friends and relations. They're a ravenous horde. They all came aboard at Sloan Square and South Kensington stations. Bound on that journey, you find your attorney, who started that morning from Devon. He's a bit undersized, but you don't feel surprised when he tells you he's only 11. Well, you're driving like mad with this singular lad. By the by, the ship's now a four-wheeler. And you're playing round games, and he calls you had names when you tell him that ties pay the dealer. This you can't stand, so you throw up your hand, you find you're as cold as an icicle. Then in your shirt and your socks, the black silk with gold clocks, you're crossing Salisbury Plain on a bicycle. Oh, you're a regular wreck, with a crick in your neck, and no wonder you snore, for your head's on the floor, and you've needles and pins from your soles to your shins, and your flesh is a creep, for your left leg's asleep, and you've cramp in your toes, and a fly on your nose, and some fluff in your lung, and a feverish tongue, and a thirst that's intense, and a general sense that you haven't been sleeping in clover. 
But at last the darkness has passed. It's daylight at last, and the night has been long. Ditto, ditto, my song. And thank goodness they're both of them over. <laughs> well, coincidentally, this next article is also about the weather, but it's not a poem. It's um, quite an interesting article entitled, Will We Ever Control the Weather? And it says, human beings have been attempting to control the weather for thousands of years now, and with the ever-evolving scientific advancements, the prospect is beginning to look more and more tangible. But with great power comes great responsibility. Back in late February, that seems a long time ago now, Britain shivered in sub-zero Siberian winds with snow covering the country. The beast from the east, as it was dubbed by the media, refused to die quickly, coming back from the dead in early March to again ravage most of the UK with exceptional heavy snowfall that disrupted travel and transport. According to Martin Bowles, operational meteorologist at the Met Office, it was a severe event by UK standards. However... It hardly matched the winter of 62 to 63 when mean temperatures stayed below freezing from Christmas to early March. Blizzards caused snowdrifts 20 foot deep while rivers and even the sea at Whistable in Kent froze solid in places. Yet even these extreme weather events hardly compare to some that have been experienced elsewhere around the globe, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Given the historic unpredictability of the weather, it's hardly surprising that since time immemorial, people have attempted to control or modify it with ritual practices. The exact forms have differed depending on cultural, but have ranged from rain dances, human sacrifices, to more simple ceremonies and prayers. Nowadays, people in the UK are generally more inclined to put their faith in science. Certainly, scientists have now have a better understanding of the complex physical interactions between the atmosphere and large areas of ocean and land that ensure weather is more predictable over the timescale of a few days. However, as Dr Philip Williamson from the School of Environmental Studies points out, a reasonable understanding of these processes doesn't mean it's possible to manipulate them to achieve reliable weather control. He explains, for example, although deliberate cooling of the surface ocean could, in theory, slow or divert hurricanes, the effort needed to change the temperature of millions of tonnes of seawater would involve costs many times greater than the uncertain benefits. Changing local cloud conditions to stimulate rainfall is potentially more achievable. Nevertheless, there has been low success for the many rainmaking techniques that have been tried. James Roger Fleming, Professor of Science and Technology in the US, discusses various attempts to manipulate weather on a small scale. 
For example, during the Second World War, Britain managed to clear fog over airfields by burning petrol using a secret system known as the Fog Investigation and Disper- Dispersal Operation, FIDO for short. Fleming admits FIDO actually worked, but it was too expensive for peacetime operation. Similarly, on occasion, cloud seeding, the introduction of chemicals into clouds, appears to have successfully produced rain. And that happened at the Beijing Olympics when rockets were fired into clouds to prematurely trigger rain so as to avoid the opening ceremony being spoilt. In California, clouds are regularly seeded with chemicals in an attempt to produce rain. Yet despite some limited success on a local basis, Fleming warns that intervening in any weather system carries immense ethical considerations. One of the pitfalls could be that trying to modify the weather in one place could actually cause a disaster elsewhere. Fleming reveals that following a secret cloud seeding experiment in 1952, the seaside resort of Lynmouth in Devon was hit by torrential rain, causing a flash flood that killed 35 people and injured many more. He acknowledges it's impossible to say if cloud seeding really did trigger the flooding or whether it was just an unfortunate coincidence. Williamson also makes the point that despite the inherent uncontrollability of weather, it's clear that long-term average weather has been unintentionally altered by human activity, burning coal, oil and gas, industry and agriculture. Indeed, such activity has increased the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere within our lifetime. In response, some scientists and engineers are now proposing that as we've failed to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, it's time to adopt a different approach, often called geoengineering. Dr Vaughan from the University of East Anglia defines that as large-scale modifications to the Earth system in order to moderate climate change. And in her opinion, geoengineering consists of two broad approaches. Firstly, those that seek to reflect more sunlight back to space to offset the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, known as solar radiation management. And secondly, those that work to directly remove greenhouse, greenhouse gases, gases sorry, such as carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It therefore seems that while we can affect some aspects of the weather... Controlling it is likely to remain beyond our abilities. Those who wish to manage our climate are perhaps guilty of even greater hubris and potentially risk destabilising the Earth's long-time weather systems. I hope you all understood that. (laughs) (laughs) Questions later. (laughs) (laughs) And continuing on the weather theme, um, here is an article taken from The New Yorker about this summer's heat wave and aerial archaeology. The UK experienced its driest summer in 57 years, and it's not been great. A British summer is usually a doubtful, fleeting thing. Sunshine and heat arrive in bursts from June until September, as if you are walking down a green, shaded path with occasional breaks in the canopy. And when the sun does come out, 
during Wimbledon, say, for example, or for a spell in August, British people go reliably mad. They take off their tops, they barbecue frantically for a few days until the clouds come in again. But this year, it hasn't been like that at all. The country warmed up in June and has baked steadily ever since, like an oven that has reached its cooking temperature. Between late June and early July, Britain endured 16 consecutive days when the temperatures hit 27.7 degrees Celsius for each and every one of those 16 days. Also in July, eastern England had 4% of its usual rainfall. In London, a city not known for its air conditioning, the parks turned brown, the road surfaces went mushy in the afternoon ferment, and the nights became unbearably still. Foul, sweet smells hung in the air. This unusual British summer has been accompanied by terrible wildfires in California and Greece, a balmy Arctic, and dozens of heat-related deaths in Japan. But even when it finally rained late in July, well, that didn't bring much relief either. In early August, Britain was then hit by an estimated 130,000 lightning bolts, which is enough electricity to boil a billion cups of tea as summer storms played havoc with the nation's roads, railways and airports, and August was even hotter. But there are some people that are really happy, the archaeologists. It's a bit like kids in a candy shop, Richard Robert Beaudley said, an aerial archaeologist at University of Oxford. The free conditions have made this summer one of the best in living memory for what archaeologists call parch marks, ghostly, pale outlines of vanished castles, settlements and burial sites that materialise on the land when it dries out and the grass and the crops die back. In recent weeks, archaeologists in light aircraft, hobbyists with drones and even people walking through local parks have discovered Iron Age farms in South Wales, a Roman road passing near Basingstoke, burial mounds in Ireland and the outline of a Second World War bomb shelter on the lawns of Cambridge. Seen from above, parch marks have a magical quality, as if a giant had doodled them from memory, but they are also disconcertingly real. They are only there because something else was. Parch marks and their less dramatic form, crop marks, are fairly common clues for archaeologists who are working in places with long, dense histories of human habitation. Butley, Robert Butley from University of Oxford, also works in North Africa and in the Middle East. The buried remains of Roman foundations of, or of medieval walls will cause negative crop marks in a field of grass or wheat because the roots of those plants on top of the ruins have less soil to work with and a phenomenon that becomes more noticeable when water is in short supply. The opposite is also true. Filled in ditches, moats with their deeper soil can lead to taller, greener plants and positive crop marks. The first aerial image that to really excite British archaeologists was taken in 1906 when army officers photographed Stonehenge from a balloon and noticed a darker ring of grass around the stones. And this was indeed the trace of an ancient ditch. You go to a site to photograph what you know is there and then you see something next to it, Beaudley says. And that happens virtually every time we go flying.
The last time parch marks were really so good and Britain was so hot was during the summer of 1976. Back then, water was rationed and the company, the country rather, appointed a minister of drought. Newspaper photographers got hold of camels and marched them across dried up riverbeds to make the English countryside actually look like Arabia. I was born in 1980 and I have become accustomed throughout my life to people reminiscing about that biblical summer whenever it looks like a British heat wave is going to last longer than a weekend. I now live in Bow in East London, next door to an older couple, John and Francis, who drive a large black Rolls Royce on Sundays and like to get away to Capri for some proper sunshine around this time of the year. In early June, when the heat was getting serious, John stopped me in the street, his brow glistening, and said to me, it's going to be just like 1976. I waved him away. I didn't believe him, but he was right. Letting a room used to be quite simple. You simply put an advert in the local paper. But in this digital world, when everybody is on various media outlets, you have to do something different. You now have to put an advert online. Melissa Kite did this when she wanted a lodger, and she discovered it wasn't going to be as easy as she thought. When I place an advert for a lodger, I really did expect potential tenants to want to come and see the room. But of course, things have moved on. My theory about human beings is that they are evolving into emoticons. A lot of people now go into seismic avoidance when you try to get them to manifest themselves in 3D format. I placed the ad on one of those spare room websites, and within minutes I was deluged by deeply earnest CVs from users with smiling headshot photos. Firstly, these talking heads wanted to make clear that my newly renovated house looks stunning, and they would absolutely love to live there. They then embarked on an account of their life and times. They told me about their hopes and dreams, their ambitions for the future, what they had achieved so far, including any voluntary work, and how they saw their life panning out as they moved forward in their quest for inner fulfilment. They told me their personal characteristics, neatness, quietness, respectfulness, thoughtfulness, and so on. Personal manifestos led seamlessly to professional resumes, and in one case, a lady told me about the inner workings of her job at the council's child and family services. <laughs> Another told me about her carer, her career in resilience. I always get mixed up between resilience and compliance. I have a feeling resilience is pretending we can survive the end of days, and compliance is fannying about with EU red tape. <laughs> Someone from a housing authority messaged to say she had a client who was ideal for the room and who was a quiet and humble man looking for somewhere to restart his life, by which I presume she meant he was a psychopath fresh out of prison. <laughs> After the job and character expositions, they told me about their hobbies, swimming, tennis, walking, music, weightlifting. In the case of the psychopath, he is sociable but would spend most of his time in his own private space in the house. Sticking newspaper clickings to the wall, no doubt. He loves dogs, which is a bonus. I bet he does. Loves them with ketchup, probably. And then the last line before they signed off, almost without exception, was, Have a great day. 
But one thing I regard as an impertinence too far is having someone tell me what sort of day to have. I'll have the day I see fit to have, and I'll thank you not to assume that greatness is open to me as an option. My day is going to involve glossing skirting boards, attempting to buy carpet with two credit cards or even three, and phoning the bank to beg them not to charge me £5 a day if I go slightly over my super scary overdraft into the emergency borrowing section of the financial underworld that is my current account. So why don't you have a great day and leave me alone to have the sort of day I'm perfectly used to having? Honestly, I, I was only expecting these people to say, can I come and see the room, please? Nevertheless, I, I decided to swallow my bitter and twisted resentments and take it all in the right spirit. I replied in each case, saying it was great they liked the photos of the house, as I had been painting for weeks to get the place finished, and would they like to come and have a look? Not a bit of it. Days passed until the next message, which would reveal itself to be a list of questions. For example, could I send them more photos? More than the 15 I've already posted? Would it be not be more helpful if they came to see the room? I suggested any evening after 6pm. More days would go past. And then the message saying, yes, they would love to see the room one evening after 6pm. End of message. I would ask which evening, and then silence would prevail. Consequently, I have had my ad online for a month, and only one person has made it through the door. He was a young, affable South African who loved the house and all its quirkiness and didn't think it mattered that the carpet wasn't down. I offered him the room on the spot, mainly on the basis that he existed. <laughs> oh dear, he said, he would have loved to move in, but it was too far from the local golf course where he worked. You mean the one over there? The one that's five minutes' drive away? Oh, yes, he said. I haven't got a car, you see. I'll throw in a bike, I said, <laughs> pointing to the beaten-up old thing propped against the garden wall. Please, I wanted to beg him. Please, don't leave. Time for a quiz, I think. Only ten questions on this one. Very straightforward, I thought. All relating to Shakespeare. In which play by Shakespeare do the following characters appear? Number one, very appropriate for us, Duncan, Donald Bain and Banquo. Number two, Mistress Ford, Mistress Quickly and Falstaff. Next, we have Prospero, Miranda and Ariel. Number four, Rosalind and Touchstone. Then we come to Horatio, Ophelia and Gertrude. Number six, Olivia and Viola. Number seven, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia. Then we have Oberon, Titania and Lysander. Followed by Leontes, Hermione and Perdita. And finally number ten, Catherine, 
Bianca and Petruccio. Well, I think I could answer two of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a light-hearted note, here are some real calls recorded in America um, when somebody was making a 911 call. Dispatcher, what's your emergency? Caller, I heard what sounded like gunshots coming from the brown house on the corner. Dispatcher, do you have an address? Caller, no, I have, <laughs> no, I have on a blouse and slacks. Why? <laughs> Dispatcher, what's your emergency? Caller, someone broke into my house and took a bite out of my ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> Dispatcher, excuse me. Caller, I made a ham and cheese sandwich, left it on the kitchen table, and when I came out of the bathroom, someone's taken a bite out of it. Dispatcher, was anything else taken? <laughs> no, but this has happened before, and I'm sick and tired of it. Dispatcher, what's the nature of your emergency? Caller, I'm, try I'm trying to reach 911, but my phone doesn't have an 11 on it. Dispatcher, this is 9-11. Caller, I thought you said it was 9-1-1. Dispatcher, yes ma'am, 9-1-1 and 9-11 are the same thing. Caller, honey, I may be old but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Dispatcher, what's the nature of your emergency? Caller, my wife is pregnant and her contractions are only two minutes apart. <laughs> Dispatcher, is this her first child? Caller, no, you idiot, it's her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, a couple more. Oh, I think it's one more. Dispatcher, 911, caller, yeah, I'm having trouble breathing. I'm all out of breath. Darn, I think I'm going to pass out. Dispatcher, where are you calling from? I'm at the payphone, North and Foster. So Oh, sorry, sir, an ambulance is on the way. Are you asthmatic? Caller, no. Dispatcher, what were you doing before you started having trouble breathing? Caller, running from the police. <laughs> um, and now another article taken from the New Yorker, a story about an asylum seeker's journey from El Salvador to Arkansas and back again, written by Camelia Osario. When Manuel ran away from El Salvador in 2015, the country had one of its highest murder rates in the world, 104 murders per 100,000 inhabitants. So Manuel, who was still a teenager, made sure that he would make it to the United States' southern border with a file of legal documents that he thought could save his life. Evidence, he said, papers that affirmed that I was in real danger. Manuel was f fleeing a local gang that had threatened him, and he saw no choice but to find a way out of the country. He planned to request asylum once he, he reached the United States and hoped that he would be able to bring his family along later. At first, all seemed to be going according to plan. He made it to El Paso in Texas when an immigration officer told him that he had a strong case. Soon after, he moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, and started working to send remittances back to his family, including his one-year-old daughter. I worked from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in landscaping, and then until 1 a.m. in a gas station, he said. 
he was relieved to be able to walk around his new neighbourhood without having to look over his shoulder. But then, in the end of 2017, an immigration judge denied him asylum. Manuel was in shock. He insisted he had done everything by the book. He'd presented himself at a port of entry. He provided the documentation of his plight. He never missed a hearing. And last April, he was deported back to El Salvador. The Trump administration has not made the immigration process easy for hundreds of people seeking asylum. In 2017, immigration judges rejected 61% of all asylum cases, the highest denial rate in a decade. During the first half of this year, 2018, the number of immigration courts finding credible fear in asylum seekers' screenings plummeted from 30% to just 14%. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has talked about elevating the the threshold standard of proof in credible fear interviews and has argued against granting granting asylum to victims of domestic abuse and or gang violence. Back in El Salvador, Manuel hasn't returned to his old neighbourhood. He is terrified of the men who threatened him and he's moved into his sister's apartment and didn't leave his room for weeks. He is in a state of constant paranoia every time he has to take a public bus. Eventually, like many deportees, he started taking English classes in order to find a job at a call centre. But he's still living in a state of uncertainty. Are you worried about your future? Danny Gold reporter asked him. Manuel replies, yes, I am. And to be honest, my future is what's on my mind in these moments. I can't get it out of my head. What am I going to do? And who am I going to be in the future? Many of us will remember Simon Williams from the television programme Upstairs, Downstairs. Well, it's quite some years ago and it's a surprise to think that Simon is now into his 70s and so a boy at the end of the Second World War. And this particular piece, he's writing about living in England with the rationing and learning about that wonderful land America, a land of plenty especially when his father went there to direct a play on, in New York. And so he writes on falling in love with New York. After the war, when England was still in monochrome and we baby boomers were in romper soups plotting the swinging 60s, shell-shocked grown-ups spoke wistfully about a place called Before the War. For us, still on rationing, America was the promised land flowing with coke and peanut butter, where goody-goody cowboys galloped about with their white teeth. Friends there would send us parcels, blue jeans, candy cigarettes, and the LPs of Broadway shows. We had a tablecloth with all the landmarks of New York on it, and took turns sitting next to the Ferris wheel on Coney Island. New York was our Narnia. We'd We'd read Eloise at the plaza and seen Lady and the Tramp, I dreamed of living in a skyscraper and having a quiff. When my father sailed off on Queen Mary to do a play on Broadway, we added a PS to our prayers. Please let the reviews be good. In the end, they were mixed, a showbiz euphemism for bad. I pictured him there in the Damon Runyon heartland. I'd learned all the songs from Guys and Dolls. My favourite lyric was... My time of day is the dark time, when the smell of the rainwashed pavements come up clean and fresh and cold, and the street lamplight fills the gutter with gold.
I imagine Daddy in his tweed suit scooping it up like Dick Whittington and that he'd come home with cowboy shirts for us all. Long before I ever went there, I loved New York, a legend in every corner, Lucille Ball, Danny Kaye, Rocky Marciano. I ruled lines in a flimsy airmail paper before I wrote to him, The dogs are well. Can you send us some bubblegum? My mother's letters had to include a summary of what was happening in the Archers. He was homesick for Ambridge, the never-never land he'd spent five years fighting to defend. She had to break it to him that Grace Archer had died in a stable fire. What a shock it must have been for him stuck in a drawing-room comedy on Broadway light years from Borsetshire. Nowadays, on Sunday mornings, when I'm torn between church and the Archer's omnibus, I remember him tapping his boiled egg as the theme music began. There'd be a faraway look in his eyes, and conversation was out of the question. If I could have told him fifty years ago that one day I'd be a resident of Ambridge myself, living in sin with Grace Archer's niece, Lillian, he might not have objected so passionately to me becoming an actor. Listening to myself as Justin Elliott, I wonder if he'd noticed how like I sound him. I, sorry, if he'd notice, sorry, I wonder if he'd notice how, how like him I sound, a chip off the old block. Sorry. This next item is entitled Anna and the Dream House. John Corbett was a workaholic. How else could this black country bargee, a customer who travelled down the waterways to Droitwich Saltworks, ultimately take over the ailing salt industry and bring prosperity out of decline? After his success, he became a very good employer. When he abolished female labour in the salt mines, not a woman raised the cry of sex discrimination. The fact that he provided decent houses for his workers and raised men's wages to compensate for their wives' lost pay packets could have had something to do with it. In fact, his workers trusted him. By the time he was 38 years old, this prosperous black country businessman set out for Europe with no other purpose than to find new outlets and markets. But his arrival in Paris changed his priorities led him to an exciting and unpredictable romance. He reached the home of one William O'Meara, who was an Irishman of some distinction attached to the diplomatic corps. He was introduced to William's wife, Adele, and to their two daughters. For the very first time in his life, and he does appear to have had a very poor family background, John's emotions were stirred. He fell for the charms of Anna, the dark-haired, lively elder daughter. And Mr. O'Meara looked favourably upon the suit of this successful, though uncultured, Englishman. And Anna, it seemed, was not discouraging in her response. Returning to England, John Corbett must have been secretly elated. He busied himself at his pleasant country home at Stoke Grange, two miles away from his main salt works, increased his domestic staff and made preparations to receive the dark-haired Irish beauty that his heart was set upon. Twelve months to the day, he returned to Paris to claim Anna, 
despite the one possible obstacle. Her family belonged to the Roman Catholic Church, and if John was not prepared to convert, he must respect Anna's right to follow her own religious persuasion. John was a staunch Anglican, exercised his right to do the same, but nevertheless the marriage took place in 1856 in Paris, and John proudly brought his bride back to Worcestershire, and the staff formally lined the drive outside to receive them in customary style. Then followed 20 momentous years when Anna presented John with three sons and two daughters. They were brought up in some affluence and were well educated at their father's unstinting expense. It was perhaps unfortunate that the mother and the growing children outstripped John in cultural matters. But the man who earned the title Salt King of Droitwich seemed content to expand his business and develop interests in the political world. He gained considerable respect as a benefactor in the community and began to have political aspirations. He then began to plan a more imposing home for the family. He purchased the manor of Impney, two miles from Droitwich along the Birmingham Road, and began another astonishing venture that was to heave its mark on Droitwich history. <coughs> the manor house was carefully demolished so it could be reconstructed <coughs> elsewhere, while the 200-acre site provided the setting for a leading French architect's ambitious plan. It seems the design of the dream house was Anna's, inspired by the beautiful chateau along the course of the River Loire. It's been described as an enchanting palace, supporting towers and turrets of beautiful proportions and design, although built in English brick and stone. There's a vista of well-laid-out gardens charming the eye from every window. Fountains sprang up, pools of clear water. Ornamental stone statues erected at intervals, and even an ice house for food storage. The magnificent wrought iron entrance gates were flanked by two lodges, also in the chateau design. When the layout was complete, it provided work for 40 gardeners to maintain the plants and keep clear the flow of the Little River Salwork. The only feature that John viewed with some disfavour was the little side gate giving easy access to the Catholic priest and church, as he was still not reconciled to Anna's religion. But John became engrossed in selecting objets d'art, antique furnishings and beautiful pictures, and the family moved into the Chateau Impney in 1875, and at the next general election, John won a seat at Westminster. Business prospects grew when Dr Hastings, the founder of the BMA in Worcester, discovered the health value of brine baths, and John bought up and restored buildings in Droitwich to accommodate visitors and tourists, bringing more prosperity and employment to the town. In the course of time, John arranged for the brick and stone from Stoke Grange, his original home with Anna, to be rebuilt into what is now the Avoncroft Museum. As for the beautiful dream house, it is now, of course, the Chateau Impney Hotel and Restaurant, and the bridal suite and wedding breakfast facilities are a speciality, many young couples beginning their marriage in the house which was built to commemorate an unexpected and perhaps unpredictable love story. This is just a short little article about Bumblebee's survival. 
The warmth of recent days has been has seen bumblebee queens foraging among the spring flowers. They have emerged from hibernation. They now need to feed and then find a place to create a nest. The queen will then lay eggs, which will become daughter workers. Later in the season, males and new queens hatch, and they will leave the nest and colony. The new queens that are fertilised will hibernate after they have fed, heavily hopefully, on nectar and pollen from available flowers. Researchers at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, the University of East Anglia, the Zoological Society of London and University College London have been studying different generations of three species of bumblebee. I hope I can pronounce these. Bombus terrestris, the buff-tailed bumblebee, Bombus lapidarius, the red-tailed bumblebee, and Bombus pascuorum, the common cardabee, in a farmland area. They have been able to show through DNA technology and remote sensing that the quality of the habitats close to the nest or colony affects the survival of the queen and her descendants. By tracking mother, daughter and sister bumblebees over two years, they discovered that the colonies and nests produced more daughter queens that lived to the following year when the colonies were located near habitats with high-quality food resources, that is, within 250 to 1,000 metres of the resource. Such resources include spring and summer flowering plants that can provide pollen and nectar throughout the bee's life cycle. Dr Carvel, senior ecologist at CEH, said the findings suggest that increasing flowers provided by spring flowering trees, hedgerow plants and crops across the landscape, in combination with summer flower resources along field edges, can increase the probability of family survival by up to four times. The results support the management of farmland in an environmentally friendly manner to provide more flowers along the edges of arable fields and the maintenance of hedgerows and meadows as further wildflower resources. Spring flowering trees like willow and flowers such as common yarrow, greater knapweed and foxgloves are important sources of food for bumblebees but so are the flowers to be found in urban gardens. Bumblebees are vital insect pollinators of many crops, but they are suffering a worldwide decline in numbers, so anything that promotes the viability of colonies is to be encouraged. And now back to Joitwich and Seoul. Um, an article about BBC Two's programme, Back to the Land. It recently aired with a very special program following Churchfields in Solwarp as they started their new business venture to bring Joitwich Salt back into production. The popular BBC Two series follows rural businesses as they take a chance on a new business venture, which they can evolve into a bigger career change, a business diversification and all cutting-edge new business working in a new rural area. The program focused on Joitwich Salt, saw national treasure Kate Humble follow husband and wife team Will and Gillian Curtin as they showcase their vision, business model, how Joitwich Salt is collected and processed, and most importantly, the finished product. 
The programme also captured the late Michael Davies, Gillian's father, who died sadly earlier in the year and whose passion was absolutely instrumental in bringing Joy Rich Salt back into the market. Will Kirshen of Churchfield Salt Works said, It was an incredible opportunity to feature on this highly regarded national television program. It has really elevated our profile with the extra publicity. It also gave us an opportunity to celebrate the rich cultural history of Droitwich and its extra special pure salt. Frankly, we also found it an absolute delight to meet and spend time with Kate Humble, who is just as lovely off camera as she is on. Will went on to say that losing Mike, Gillian's father, has made this year incredibly difficult for them as a family, especially as they were a close-knit family running the business together. Having Mike's passion for Joitwich Salt captured on film, however, was really special for the family, and they will continue to pay tribute to his vision and keep the historic legacy of Joitwich Salt going for generations to come. Droitwich Salt continues to push the boundaries, having recently developed their product lines and are increasing their stockists and chef endorsements all the time. Recently, recently added lines include smoke salt, charcoal salt, sea truffle salt and coastline salt. Droitwich Salt has also developed a number of these lines along with Michelin-starred chef Mosley. Anyone interested in food knows how vital it is in helping flavours and ingredients really come to light. And it's, it's of such a high quality, you don't need to use much of Joitwich Salt's products to impart the rich flavour that really elevates the cooking. Joitwich Salt's British heritage has a fascinating backstory and it has inspired a range of salts with interesting flavours that will add a subtle twist to dishes as they use the ancient methods to extract the salt in its purest form, leaving a product that is packed with flavour and a pure joy to cook with. You have to be of a certain age to remember Stanley Holloway. He was a very famous music hall artist probably known to most people from the film My Fair Lady, where he played Albert Doolittle, the dustman. He was born in 1890 and carried on his career right into the 1980s. And the thing that he was most famous for was his monologues. And I suppose the best known of his monologues is probably Albert and the Lion. So here goes. There's a place in the north known as Blackpool that's noted for fresh air and fun. And Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom went there with young Albert, their son. Our grand little lad was young Albert, all dressed in his best quite a swell. We a stick with horses at handle, the finest that Woolworths could sell. They didn't think much to the seaside. The waves, they was fiddling and small. There were no wrecks and nobody drowned. fact, nothing to laugh at at all. So, seeking for further amusement, they paid and went into the zoo where they'd lions and tigers and camels, and old ale and sandwiches too. There was one great big lion called Wallace. His nose were all covered in scars, and he lay in a somnolent posture with the side of his face on the bars. Now Albert had heard about lions, how they was ferocious and wild, and to see lion lying so peaceful, well, didn't seem right to the child. So straightway the brave little fella, not showing a morsel of fear, took his stick with the horse at an handle and shoved it in Wallace's ear. You could see the lion didn't like it, for giving a kind of a roll, he pulled Albert into cage with him and swallowed the little lad all. 
Now, father, who'd viewed the occurrence and didn't know what to do next, said, Hey, mother, yon lion's at Albert. Her mother said, Oh, I am vexed. So the animal keeper had to be sent for. He came and he said, What to do? Ma said, Yon lion's at Albert, and him in his Sunday best, too. Pa said, Fair's fair, young fella. I think it's a shame and a sin for a lion to go and eat Albert, and after we've paid to come in. <laughs> the manager had to be sent for. He came and he said, What's to do? Pa said, Yon lion's at Albert, him in his Sunday best, too. The manager wanted no trouble, so took out his purse right away and said, uh, <clears throat> How much to settle the matter? Pa said, What do you usually pay? <laughs> but mother had turned a bit awkward when she thought where her Albert had gone and said someone had got to be summonsed. So that was decided upon. So off they went down to police station in front of the magistrate trap and told what had happened to Albert and proved it by showing his cap. <laughs> The magistrate gave his opinion that no one was really to blame and he hoped that the Ramsbottoms would have further sons to their name. At that mother got proper blazing. Oh, thank you, sir, kindly, said she. What, spend all my time raising children to feed ruddy lions? Not me. <laughs> Beautifully read. <laughs> Coming on now to some more letters from the Times... Now moving on to the years immediately after the First World War. In July 1919, correspondence started relating to the seeming news that was very worrying that was coming from America with regarding the subject of alcohol. Sir, will you permit an elderly man who is not a politician nor a public character but merely an individual among millions of honest, sober persons whose liberty is now attacked by a moral tyranny. I want to state an opinion with regard to this crusade which is being started against moderate drinkers. It's not needed even in the cause of morality. It's obvious drunkenness has not entirely ceased, but it is rapidly declining from the natural action of civilization. When I was a child, even in the country village where I was brought up, excess in drinking was patent in every class of society. Now I do not know these days of one single man or woman who is ever totally under the influence of liquor. Why not leave this process of moderation to pursue its normal course? My father, whose life was one of intense intellectual application, he died from the result of an accident in his 79th year. He would have been astonished to learn that his claret and water at his midday meal, a glass of something when he went to bed, was either sinful in itself or provocative to sin in others. There's no blessing upon those who invent offences for pleasure of giving pain and who lay burdens wantonly on the liberty of others. We have seen attempts by the fantastically righteous to condemn those who eat meat or go to see plays, who would even take walks on Sundays. This campaign against the sober use of wine and beer is on a footing with those efforts, should be treated as they have been. Already I note that tobacco is being forbidden to the clergy. The fact that Americans are advertised as organising and leading this campaign should be regarded with alarm. It must, I think, be odious of all 
to all right-thinking Americans in the States. We do not express an opinion, much less organize a propaganda in the United States. The conditions of that country differ extremely from our own. It is not for us to interfere in their domestic business. If Englishmen went around America urging Americans to defy their own laws and revolt against their national customs, we'd be very properly indignant. Let crusading Americans be taught the same reticence. It was never more important than it is now for Great Britain and the United States to act in harmony but respect each other's habits and prejudices. These conditions may be commonplace. I hope they are. Many people seem afraid of saying in public what they are unanimously saying in private. The propagandist teetotaler is active and unscrupulous. He does not hesitate to bring forward evidence or attach moral opprobrium to his opponents. He fights with all weapons, whether they're clean or no. We must openly resist without fear of consequences what those of us who share my view judge to be cruel and ignorant fanaticism of these apostles. We should offer no apology for insisting on retaining our liberty. I am, sir, your obedient servant, Edmund Goss. Note, the following year, the sale of alcohol was banned in the United States, hence the Prohibition era. Now here's a poem by Pam Ayres. This is a poem I wrote because I'm of an age when a lot of my friends' husbands are retiring now. And I observe that for some of the couples this is a tremendous and exciting success. <laughs> But for others, it, it takes a bit more getting used to, uh, particularly if he is a man of firm opinions. Uh, so it's partly about that, but it's mostly just about the person we all know who knows it all. And it doesn't matter what your little modest opinion might be, he is going to overwhelm it with his enormously important opinion. And I'd just like to make it perfectly clear, of course, that it's nothing to do with any member of my own family. <laughs> no. You believe me, don't you? Yes, that's all right then. Anyway, this is it. You know, this world is complicated and imperfect and oppressed. And it's not hard to feel timid, apprehensive and depressed. It seems that all around us tides of questions ebb and flow and people want solutions but they don't know where to go. Opinions abound but who is wrong and who is right? No, people need a prophet, a diffuser of the light, someone they can turn to as the crises rage and swirl, someone with the remedy, the wisdom, the pearl. Well, they should have asked my husband. <laughs> no, he'd have told him. Then and there, his thoughts on immigration, teenage mothers, Tony Blair, <laughs> the future of the monarchy, house prices in the South, the wait for hip replacements, BSE and foot and mouth. <laughs> No, they should have asked my husband. He can sort out any mess. He can rejuvenate the railways. He can cure the NHS. So any little niggle, anything you want to know, just run it past my husband, wind him up, and let him go. <laughs> it's 
Chelsea, congestion on the motorways, free holidays for thugs, the damage to the ozone layer, refugees, drugs. These may defeat the brain of any politician bloke, but present it to my husband. He will solve it at a stroke. He'll clarify the situation. He will make it crystal clear. You'll feel the glazing of your eyeballs <laughs> and the bending of your ear. <laughs> Corruption at the top is an authority on that and the Mafia, Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. <laughs> Upon these areas, he brings his intellect to shine in a great, compelling voice that's twice as loud as yours or mine. <laughs> I often wonder what it must be like to be so strong, infallible, articulate, self-confident and wrong. <laughs> when, when it comes to tolerance, he hasn't got a lot. Joyriders should be guillotined and muggers should be shot. <laughs> The sound of his own voice becomes like music to his ears. And he hasn't got an inkling that he's boring us to tears. <laughs> oh, it's relentless. It's unstoppable. The hunting ban was grim. I fantasise at night about the hounds pursuing him. <laughs> One thing, and one thing only, caused a smile his face to crack. At last, we beat Australia. <laughs> and we got the ashes back. Hooray! <laughs> My friends don't call so often. They have busy lives, I know, but it's not every day you want to hear a windbag suck and blow. <laughs> Encyclopedias, on them we never have to call. Why clutter up the bookshelf when my husband knows it all? That poem was called They Should Have Asked My Husband. And following on from that, here's a short art article about Pam Ayres. As you probably know, she's been a writer, broadcaster and entertainer for over 40 years and is the author of several best-selling poetry collections as well as being one of our most popular female comedians. And these are her suggestions for If I Ruled the World. And she says, if she ruled the world, people would be more compassionate to animals. 
I feel strongly, she says, that we should live alongside them. My garden belongs just as much to birds, toads, frogs, hedgehogs and grass snakes as it does to me. If she ruled the world, she says, I teach children to cook at school. As they grow up, they'd appreciate the value of eating healthily and know that cooking is fun. When I was young, we studied domestic science, and I'll never forget the moment I was handed a chunk of yeast. I was amazed by this living, spongy stuff that transformed my dough into the most delicious smelling and tasting bread. We keep an eye on those close to us, she says. Of course it's great to help people the other side of the globe, but let's not forget our family, friends and the local community. We should get to know and look out for our neighbours and be there to offer support if someone needs it. I'm lucky because I live in a very nice village with a lovely network of people who do things to bring people together. We recently had a village festival where everyone opened their gardens and it was great fun. If she ruled the world, she said, if you have room for a dog in your life, it should come from a rescue shelter. The benefits of dog ownership are well known, but there's something extra special if that dog needed a new start in life. They're so grateful. People with dogs tend to smile at each other and are more, and are more open to conversations. Plus, the outdoor exercise is great for your physical and mental health. <coughs> She says, I'd stop car parking charges at hospitals. Here, here. Recently, my brother-in-law was very ill and my sister was paying large amounts to visit him. It seems immoral to add to the burden of anyone with a loved one in hospital. She says, hotel bedrooms would be designed better. I travel a lot and I've lost count of the number of times I've had to squint in the mirror on the back of a wardrobe with a hairdryer flex stretched to its maximum. Just a comfortable chair, a table, lit mirror and a socket all within reach of each other would be nice. She says I'd give farmers financial incentives to encourage wildlife on their land. One of the worst results of intensive farming is the deadly runoff from the chemicals that are sprayed over crops. This, this toxic liquid finds its way into our streams and seas. When I was a child, I used to love lying on my tummy by the stream near our house and the joy of lifting up stones and finding little bullheads, sticklebacks and minnows was wonderful. Now that stream has no wildlife in it at all and I mourn the poisoning of the habitat. And last, she said, I tell people it's okay to be different. In fact, it's something we should encourage. There's a lot of pressure on children to conform, but it's good to remind them that it's perfectly all right to be themselves. Audiobook narrator Scott Brick takes time out from recording his latest book to talk about the ins and outs of audiobook work in an article called How Audiobook Narrators Master Their Craft. Audiobook narrator Scott Brick can't stop telling stories. He has recorded almost 800 in his 17-year career, and while his speciality is mystery, thriller, and science fiction, for example, Robert Ludlum's Bourne series, Justin Cronin's The Passage trilogy, 
and Frank Herbert's Dune Saga, to name a few. He also works in non-fiction, classics and other genres. He has won five Audi Awards, which is the equivalent of the Oscars of the audio industry, including two this year, and in science fiction for the 25th anniversary edition of Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, and in thrillers for Steve Berry's The Patriot Threat. He has been named a Golden Voice by Audiophile magazine. He's asked, what makes a good audiobook narrator? He says it sounds oversimple and some people think I'm being dismissive when I say it, but it all comes down to how well you can tell a story. There are so many people I know who have beautiful voices, a magical sounding voice, but they just don't know how to carry a story. It's not necessarily their acting skills, it's not necessarily their acting skills, because there are some celebrities who've got fabulous acting skills, and yet they may not be able to tell the story quite right. It's an intangible thing, and you know it when you hear it. You studied acting and writing at university and performed in a travelling Shakespeare's company for a decade, the interviewer asks. Did that uniquely prepare you for audio work? Yes, it did, although unknowingly on my part, Shakespeare certainly helped in terms of diction and understanding complex story structure, but my writing background has helped equally. Because the more you know what an author does, the more you know why the author does what he or she does, the better you will be able to help them do their job. All storytelling is in fact misdirection. The author wants you to think this shiny character over here is the one who done it, but the person who really done it is the person over there and that you always thought was actually the hero. And when I understand how the author is misleading the audience, I then can help to subtly do the same thing. So how do you prepare for the job? Scott Brickers asked. Well, looking up pronunciations is a vast majority of it. There are so many words that when you look at them, you think you understand how they're said. But I look at the words all the time and realise I've never said this out loud and I may be wrong. I used to look at a word macadam, but now I have a blacktop and concrete or whatever you call it, and I would think that macadam. If I hadn't done that, people who are smarter than me would have been completely taken out of that listening experience. Right now, I'm working on the latest instalment in the Dune series that Frank Herbert started years ago. I was speaking to his son yesterday, going over all these words that were made up for the series. I record our phone conversation so that I can hear him say the words, and then I write them out phonetically, and then I refer back to them in the recording to the phonetic pronunciation as I record it. We're up to 1,800 words that are unique to that world in the Dune series. What else do you do to prepare? Well, obviously you have to read the book. You look for vocal references like his high-pitched whine of a voice, any of those references that talk about how the voice sounds or the accent comes out. I need to file away that in my head and refer back to it when that character comes to life again. Those are the primary things, but every once in a while I'll do something to get myself into the mood of a particular genre. For, for example, I was working on a book called The Stir of Echoes. It's a horror story told in the first person about a guy who doesn't believe in ghosts until his four-year-old son suddenly starts speaking in the voice of an 80-year-old dead woman. He is forced to contemplate, might the supernatural actually exist? And he's terrified throughout the book. So what I did was, instead of inst recording the story during the day, I waited until about nine o'clock at night when it got dark. I shut off all my phones. I put The Shining in my DVD player and I watched it until about midnight, every night. 
And then I went downstairs into my big, empty, hardwood, floor-lined house that echoes a great deal and went into my studio and I turned off all the lights. So here I am all alone in my house and I start recording that book. I thought if I felt scared, then I'm probably going to sound scared. And the next night I followed it up by doing exactly the same routine, but I watched the ring this time. You can't do that with every book, but, and I don't work in horror all that often, but I thought, why not? Why not go for the extra effort? So where do all the accents and the voices come from? Well, doing a character voice versus doing an accent is a very different thing. To me, an accent is just like a natural part of an audiobook process. With certain accents, say Slavish, Russian and French, the thicker and more precise you get, the harder it is for the American audience and British audiences to understand. I always do a little bit of an accent so it doesn't interfere with the words, but it gets the idea across that the character is foreign. Then you've got character voices, which I don't do very often because I typically work in the 21st century realism. Most of the time, I can't do voices that you would expect to hear in a Saturday morning cartoon, for example, something over the top. Those voices do have a place in an audiobook, but it's typically for other genres, for example, young adult and the Harry Potter books, fantasy, that sort of thing. If I work in those genres, I'll do those voices, but it's only about 10% of the time. But really how I also prepare is that it's primarily hydration. I am an absolute nut when it comes to drinking water. I will never start recording an audiobook until I've had at least two waters, two litres of water. And I take down five or six per day. And this has done wonders to, pervert, to preserve my voice. And finally, do you collaborate with your authors? Well, some are more hands-on than others. I've never had an author come in and insist I do it one way or the other. But then I realized that these are personal creations and there is a great deal of trust involved. So when they just allow me to go in and do what I do, I find that very humbling and honoring. But occasionally an author wants me to be involved, and I love that perhaps even more. For example, the mystery suspense writer Brad Meltzer, and I will talk about the names before I record any of his books, because he puts a lot of references to his friends, and I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing them correctly. Crime novelist Greg Hurtwitz has a musical reference. The parents sing their kids a lullaby, and I'd never heard it, so I called him and I said, can you help me out with this? And he conferenced in his wife, and she sang it to his kid. So she sings it to me. And I record that conversation and say, great, I know what to do. And then every once in a while, I'll get an email from an author who will share something really deep and really insightful about their books. I love my job. Worcester is, of course, famous for its China industry. But I was reading an article the other day about another uh, product that was made in Worcester for many years, about which I certainly didn't know. In the 1850s, an Irish tinsmith with the rather wonderful name of William Blizzard Williamson established his own metalworks in Worcester. He named it the Providence Works, and locations such as Foundry Street and Providence Street are now the only reminders of one of Worcester's most important industries. Beginning with wig boxes, tin baths and travelling trunks, Williamson and his sons eventually seized upon a fascinating idea from the United States. Now, preserving food was already a vital part of British life, and traditionally glass jars were used to seal food for freshness and to keep them for some months. 
But in the early 1800s, the Americans began to use air-sealed tin containers instead of jars, and the tin can was born. Williamson's altered their operation to enable the mass production of open-topped cans that could be sold to the food industry, and this proved to be a very shrewd decision. Williamson's, who became Williams's, Williamson's Metal Box and eventually the Metal Box Company, became one of the largest producers of tin cans, eventually moving their operations to Perry Wood in Worcester. And to this day, the tin can still carries many goods safely around the globe, but there was once a time when many of those tins started their journey in Worcester. I'm sure many of us moan about bureaucracy and red tape, but twas ever thus. Going back to 1923, here's a letter to the editor of the Times from the writer, humorist and Member of Parliament, A.P. Herbert, on the difficulties then of a simple matter, it would seem, renewing your passport. Sir, is it not time the official categories of respectability were revised? In order to secure the renewal of a passport, it is necessary to obtain a signed declaration of identity and fitness from a mayor, magistrate, justice of the peace, minister of religion, barrister at law, physician, surgeon, solicitor or bank manager with whom the applicant is personally acquainted. And similar lists are found on many other official forms on other subjects. On what principle they were compiled, I know not. They cause considerable inconvenience and defeat their own end. I never knew a mayor. I've known many civil servants of reasonable integrity. In my neighbourhood there are two or three not more unscrupulous than the rest of their profession. I'm quite friendly with two editors. I know a peer, several stockbrokers, baronets, novelists and members of parliament who would all readily swear I'm a fit and proper person to go to France. But these gentlemen are not worthy, and I'm forced to search any casual acquaintance for magistrates and dental surgeons who in fact know nothing at all about me. For persons even poorer than myself, the difficulty is more serious. As a rule, the only respectable people they know are the physician and the clergyman. Why should these alone be bothered with the things? Why not a policeman, a postman, a landlord, or even a tax collector? Things have come to a pretty pass in this democratic age if the word of an attorney is more than the word of a publisher. If we can't trust a policeman, who can we trust? The result in most cases is the applicant obtains a solemn declaration from the one of his acquaintances who least knows about him. This is the kind of trivial official rubbish which is allowed to endure forever because no one thinks it's worth to protest I therefore do protest that these antiquated and offensive lists should be revised as above. If that's too daring, let's abolish them altogether and simply have a householder. Here's the new take on Noah's Ark. Everything I need to know I learned from Noah's Ark. One, don't miss the boat. Two, remember that we're all in the same boat. Three, Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. <laughs> Four, stay fit. When you're 60 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Five, 
Don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Six, build your future on high ground. Seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Eight, speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Nine, when you're stressed, float a while. <laughs> Ten, remember the ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. <laughs> And last but not least, no matter the storm, there's always a rainbow waiting. And now for an article taken from Popular Science magazine about how hunting regulations are forcing animals to change in all sorts of ways. Humans are perhaps the greatest source of evolutionary pressure. Not the greatest in that we are the best. We just apply a lot of force. In just a few thousand years, for example, we have drastically changed the temperament of dogs by domesticating them. And in a couple of hundred years, we've actually managed to diversi diversify them into separate breeds. And we have done that exactly the same to virtually every livestock animal. Yes, we are truly excellent at forcing other species to suit our needs and our whims. But perhaps our greatest work, and again, this is not meant as a compliment at all, is how we've changed wild animals through hunting. The simple fact is that any time you hunt an animal, especially if you only want a specific subset of the population for your dinner table, you are applying a scientific and selective pressure. That's exactly what's happening in bear populations right now, at least in Sweden. Researchers are taking a careful look at data from the past two decades and realizing that hunting regulations intended to protect mother bears and cubs have some unintended consequences, though not all of them are bad. Because hunters are prohibited from shooting female bears with dependent cubs in toes, they, sorry, in tow, they have been selecting for bears who keep their kiddos with them for longer. As a result, their whole reproductive cycle has shifted to become slower. It, prior to 1993, a Scandinavian brown bear cub could seem to spend about one and a half years with their family. But now, about a quarter of all litters of the same bears spend a whole extra year. These mothers also have fewer offspring, on average, because they don't get pregnant again until their cubs leave. But the cost seems to be outweighed by the survival advantage both cubs and mama bears get by sticking together, simply by having more babies, which would have shortened the reproductive cycle, probably wasn't as protective. But since there is such a vulnerable period between when cubs wean and when a mama bear becomes pregnant again, having your baby stick with you reduces that vulnerable period since you get a whole extra year of full protection. That is not to say that all hunting regulations have positive impacts, though. Many have had very negative outcomes. For example, elephants. Hunting elephants for their tusks, or more accurately, poaching them, has imposed a powerful selection force against impressive teeth. Once a way to dominate your social group and defend yourself against predators, tusks now have become a liability. Any animal with less desirable tusks is more likely to avoid poachers and therefore have a lot of offspring. As a result, increasing numbers of elephants grow short, defensive, stumpy tusks, 
and in some cases, none at all. Looking at deer and sheep antlers with horns, pretty much any animal that has an impressive antler or horn or any impressive physical feature that we can hang on our walls is subject again to artificial selection. Hunting regulation sometimes prohibits young males who have fewer points on their antlers or underdeveloped horns, so hunters tend to kill the older specimens. But this just selects again for deer with smaller headgear, and over time many deer, antelope and sheep populations have shifted to have males with less impressive headgear. And finally, looking at trout and salmon, speaking of body size, let's talk about fishing. Even moderate fishing applies selective force. Fishermen and fisherwomen generally want to catch the biggest specimens, whether it's for profit or just for food, which means we are systematically killing off the largest fish in any given population. This means that popular fish like trout and salmon are decreasing in size overall, since being smaller gives the fish a greater survival advantage. They keep, if they're going to keep shrinking until we stop selecting for the biggest swimmers. We're very lucky that near Worcester we have a wonderful stately home, Croom Court. If you visit it, you'll see lots of statues in the gardens. And those statues owe a great deal to a lady you'll probably never have heard of. Visitors to Croom Court near Worcester will have an opportunity to hear all about Eleanor Code, an important designer in the 18th century, thanks to a new tour. Without her, the stately homes and gardens of England, including Croom, might have far fewer statues. A spokesman for Croom Court said, This pioneering businesswoman developed a new building material, codestone, which was used to create the many statues and structures we see here in the 18th and 19th centuries. Eleanor originally named the material lithodipora, not quite such a catchy name as code, taken from the ancient Greek for twice-fired stone, but it was others who later named it after her. Code stone was produced from 1771 until around 1831, ten years after Eleanor's death, and this highly mouldable and versatile artificial stone has unique properties that make it far superior to real stone in resisting the effects of erosion and weathering. The ultimate demise of code stone was brought about by the invention of Portland cement. And, shortly, and sadly, after Eleanor's death, uh, the inventor of code stone didn't get so much as a tombstone, although she was still a woman of some wealth. The spokesman said, Eleanor Code died in Camberwell Grove, London, on November the 16th, 1821, and she was buried in an unmarked grave at Bunhill Field Cemetery in Islington. Research suggests there are only around 650 pieces of code stone surviving today, and Crewton's collection of code stone, scattered throughout the grounds, is one of the largest and most important in the country. The spokesman added, it was first introduced to Croom by the famous landscape architect Capability Brown in 1778, when the tablets of a Grecian wedding were inserted in the island temple, after which the sixth Earl of Coventry seems to have become a real convert. The sphinxes, which proudly stand on the south side of Croom Court, looking out over the parkland, were next to be installed, followed in around 1800 by all the other pieces. 
Notable examples of code stone other than those at Croom include the South Bank Lion on Westminster Bridge, Captain Bly's Tomb and Nelson's Memorial at Burnham Thorpe. Code stone was also used on such notable buildings as Buckingham Palace, Castle Howard, the Royal Pavilion at Brighton, the Imperial War Museum and even Rio de Janeiro Zoo. Visitors can join Croom's volunteer-led tour to find out more about Eleanor Code and the many Code stone statues and the structures she designed in the 18th century. The tours will run until the end of October every Monday from 1.30, from Wednesday from 11am and 1.30, on Thursdays 11am and 1.30. The spokesman said, as tours are volunteer-led, weather-dependent, we recommend visitors contact our visitor centre for updated information, and normal admission applies. Croom is open throughout the year. The park and lakeside are open from 9am until 5.30pm, and Croom Court is open from 11am to 4.30pm every day. No, we haven't forgotten the quiz. Here are the answers. To which play by Shakespeare the following characters appear? Number one was Duncan, Donald Bain and Banquo. And they're in Macbeth. Then we have Mistress Ford, Mistress Quickly and Falstaff. From the <coughs> Merry Wives of Windsor. Prospero, Miranda and Ariel are main characters in The Tempest. Rosalind and Touchstone appear in As You Like It. Horatio, Ophelia and Gertrude, Hamlet. The two ladies, Olivia and Viola, Twelfth Night. The three characters, Goneril, Regan and Cordelia, of course the daughters of King Lear. Then we have number eight was Oberon, Titania and Lysander, there in Midsummer Night's Dream. And Leontes, Hermione and Perdita appear in The Winter's Tale. And finally, Catherine, Bianca and Petruchio are in The Taming of the Shrew. I didn't get many of those right. Um, here's an interesting article called All Chief and No Indian. Just over 95 years ago, Worcester played a surprising cameo role in one of the strangest stories of the 20th century. At 7pm on Monday the 26th of February 1923, the city's now-demolished Theatre Royal hosted the first performance of a twice-nightly oh, twice week-long show that featured an incongruous array of talent so characteristic of the popular and aptly named theatrical genre known as variety. Among those acts were balloon dancers, a troupe of acrobats, an illusionist and a man occupying what can't have been a widely contested title as England's greatest singing ventriloquist. <laughs> Topping this lineup was a handsome, charismatic, 34-year-old American billed as Chief White Elk, Chief of the Cherokee Indians. Clad in a feathered headdress and war paint, he strode onto the stage where he delivered an amusing speech that sought to dispel preconceptions about his people. 
In a rich and melodious tenor voice, he went on to sing a few English songs and demonstrate a Native American war dance. His performance was hailed by the Worcestershire Echoes reviewer as the show's most outstanding turn. That same reviewer also commented on how Chief White Elk's features and colour would enable him to pass for an Englishman. Only a few weeks earlier, the Chief had travelled from Canada to London with the intention of seeking an audience with King George V and pleading for better educational opportunities for Cherokee youth. St James's Palace had obliged by arranging for him to meet the British monarch. Yet the self-styled Chief White Elk wasn't even a Native American, let alone leader of his tribe. He was, in fact, a Rhode Island-born professional singer named (coughs) Edgar LaPlante, who had first adopted this exotic persona while working at a Coney Island amusement park. Between then and his arrival in Worcester, he'd led an extraordinary life. One of its high points had been when the governor of Utah had officiated at his marriage to a genuine Native American in front of 5,000 people gathered in the grounds of Salt Lake City's equivalent to the White House. His American escapades were, however, just the prelude to his even more flamboyant adventures in Europe. Following his bigamous marriage to a Manchester switchboard operator, (laughs) he decamped to Paris, where he worked in the decadent cabarets and mixed with the cream of the city's art scene. He subsequently found a job chaperoning a group of Native Americans who were promoting a hit Hollywood Western, a job that took him down to the Riviera. There he met a fabulously rich Austrian countess who bankrolled what was presented as his royal tour of Italy, in the course of which he attracted huge crowds, acquired worldwide fame and became a darling of Benito Mussolini's fascist regime. Keen to play the visiting big shot, he gave away as much as 58 million American US dollars in 2018 currency, borrowed from the Countess and other women. Next to them, the people of Worcester appear to have got off lightly during their brush with one of history's great imposters. Next, an article written by Melissa Kite in The Spectator magazine about real life. So the engineer from Beaker arrived and got to work trying to mend the new fridge. Having spent a very long time on the phone to customer services being grilled about my part in its apparent downfall, I was under no illusions that he was going to try and pin this on me. During two extremely unpleasant calls to a 0333 number, I had been subjected to a series of interrogations that were really worthy of Guantanamo Bay. Trick questions abounded, and the chilling impression was given that they knew I would incriminate myself. It was just a matter of time, and they had all the time in the world. They could keep me on the line, asking me baffling details about my fridge until I tripped up and let slip that I had done something that invalidated its warranty. Because I had done nothing to the fridge apart from buy it, have it delivered, switch it on, and place some food items inside it, I was at loss to know how to respond to this hostile line of questioning. 
They accused me of shoving, shoving food up against the inside back wall of the fridge, a cardinal sin of, fruit, of fridge management. They accused me of being unreasonable because I couldn't say exactly when I had bought it and also of being unreasonable because when I asked them if I might go and look for my credit card details, well, that was just unheard of. They also accused me of not doing enough to unblock the drain properly. They expressed unalloyed shock and amazement that I had not yet put Jeff lemon juice and hot water down it to dissolve the bits of rotten food that were obviously blocking it up because I had followed such questionable food storage practices. They told me that no, they wouldn't wait on the line while I tried to read the serial number. If I didn't know it off by heart, they implied, what sort of person was I? (laughs) Bent, obviously, lying patently. Did I even have a new fridge? Hmm, very unlikely, they inferred. They tried everything short of screaming. Now listen to me, you stinking piece of crap. You've ruined that fridge yourself, haven't you? Haven't you? Come on, say it. Tell us what you've done. We're going to find out anyway, and when we do, you will be sorry. (laughs) And then when all else failed and I still refused to admit what I had done because I hadn't done it, they grudgingly said that they would send an engineer, but I probably should know that if he came... The problem, if the problem was not the manufacturer's fault, then I would be billed heavily. And we hope you're happy now that our poor engineer is going to have to take time out of his busy working day to visit your filthy abode and fix your putrid fridge full of rotting food, you sniveling excuse of a household appliance owner. You make us sick. They obviously wanted to scream. As it happened, the engineer was a cheerful sort of soul, he, and within five minutes of dutifully checking, checking all the usual ways of an uns, which an unsuspecting consumer might have broken their new appliance within two months of purchasing it, he declared, hmm, there's something very wrong here. You're darn tootin' there's something wrong here, I said, for despite the fridge being turned onto the coldest setting, there was water pouring out of every orifice and pooling so fast in the overflow tray at the back that if he wasn't going to fix it, I was going to have to put a horse trough there just to catch the few drips. After fiddling around for a bit longer, he took the pipe off the back to find that the drainage system was blocked with something, I, I can't remember its name, something that they inject into the fridge during the manufacturing process. Slam dunk 100% because fault. As such, it would have been nice to get a little phone call the next day from one of those ladies at Customer Service Center to say, you know, we're sorry, we're, we were all a bit strapped. We, we all but strapped you to a sloping board with a wet towel over your airways and poured large quantities of water all over your face. We're sorry. But no. One thing the nice man did say to me as he was leaving, I would advise you to never place any food items, yes, yes, against the back wall of the fridge, I know, yes, I know, I understand all about that, and thank you, I am so grateful that I've been enlightened. I mean it. It's fair to say that for for me, from now, putting any food against the back wall of the fridge is right up there with drink driving and questioning the state of Israel. (laughs) I am never going to do it, not until hell freezes over at least. And it's not likely to if Biko has anything to do with it. I, Christine, and I very much in uh, members of the National Trust and very much enjoy visiting their various properties. She's very keen on the garden, but she's got used to my inevitable question, which is, do they do cream teas? <laughs> there is, as Pooh Bear observed, always time for a little something. So my eye was drawn to an article entitled Decadent Time in Former Nunnery. 
Mike Maloney treated his sister-in-law to a decadent afternoon tea at a former nunnery. There's nothing more quintessentially British than an afternoon tea, and there are few better ways to indulge yourself or treat a friend than enjoying a decadent spread of cake and sandwiches, knowing it's both naughty but nice. So it was with some relish I took my sister-in-law to a birthday treat at Stanbrook Abbey. A mere ten-minute drive from Worcester, and we were making our way down a winding drive through breathtaking grounds to arrive at the picturesque abbey. The former convent has been taken over by hand-picked hotels, which runs various country hotels across the country, aiming for an indulgent yet attainable country house experience. And the combination is spot on at Stanbrook, with the original Abbey Tower standing bestride the 55-bedroomed hotel. We were greeted by friendly young staff, who are both attentive and discreet throughout the tea. Afternoon tea is served in the appropriately named Sister Charlotte's Restaurant. We chose to eat out on the terrace, as it was a lovely sunny day, and the view of the grounds from our elevated position was magnificent. And what a spread we had! After choosing our speciality tea from a fine range, I opted for a delicious mint concoction. We were treated to a fine Bruno Payard champagne as we relaxed and took in the magnificent view. Our three-tier stand was duly brought to the table, crammed with dainty sandwiches, handmade cakes, pastries, and scones. The sandwiches were topped with quality smoked salmon, roast beef, and cucumber and cream cheese. A fine selection. The scones, both fruit and plain, were a delight with the requisite jam and clotted cream. It always strikes me how you seem to be able to make room for more on occasions like these, and we certainly indulged ourselves with a decadent array of cakes, including caramel beignet, lime cake, and a chocolate and blood orange tart. The whole experience was a delight. The food and view were magnificent, and the staff obliging and charming. My sister-in-law enjoyed her treat and was already planning a return visit with her mother before we left.、Oh, lovely story.、Um, I seem to have、um, had a lovely night here, listening to some great articles that all the team have put together. Thank you all very much.、Um, I feel I should sort of finish off with just saying, "Did you knows?" And the phrase "rule of thumb" is derived from an old English law, which stated that you couldn't beat your wife with anything wider than your thumb. The term "the whole nine yards" came from World War II fighter pilots in the South Pacific, when arming their aeroplanes on the ground, the 50-caliber machine gun ammo belts measured exactly 27 feet before being loaded into the fuselage. If the pilots fired all their ammo at a target, it got the full nine yards. The dot that appears over the letter I is called a tittle. The largest ocean liner pays a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar toll for every trip through the Panama Canal, and the canal generates full one third of Panama's entire economy. Did you know that the only food that doesn't spoil is honey, and there's enough fuel in a jumbo jet tank to drive an average car four times around the world. 
and a Category 3 hurricane releases more energy in 10 minutes than all the world's nuclear weapons combined. And that brings us to the end of this month's magazine. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as everybody here has enjoyed reading. So from Sue, Caro, Stephen, Brian, and myself, Jenny, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>